Would you turn with me please to Daniel 5 as we continue to praise the great name of the Lord? Oh, you know what? I, I need to dismiss the children for Children's Church. So, as you're turning to Daniel 5, those children that are going to the Children's Church, you can please quietly be dismissed and go on to your, your service. It was a blessing to have you guys join us this morning, and so thanks for, for being part of our service already. Daniel 5. When you find Daniel 5, let's stand together, please, for the reading of the Lord's Word to demonstrate our, our reverence for the Lord and for His Word. Most of you uh, have the little um, bookmark that has the key verse for the book of Daniel. It's Daniel 1132b. And before I read aloud Daniel 5, I'd like us all to read together Daniel 1132b. And uh, we'll say the reference, the verse, and then the reference again. Okay? Daniel 1132b. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Daniel 1132b. Daniel 5, I'll read aloud as you follow along. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. That the king and his, lord, his lords, the, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the, of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed. And his thoughts troubled him, and the joints of his hip were loosened, and his knees knocked against each other. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke to the wise men of Babylon. Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. The king, Belshazzar, then King Belshazzar, was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in the kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom... Like the wisdom of the gods were found in him, King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him the chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding, interpreting of dreams, and solving of riddles, and explaining of enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation." Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives of Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you should be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. 
Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. Because of the majesty that he gave him, all the peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whoever he wished, he executed, and whomever he wished, he kept alive, and whomever he wished, he set up, and whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne. They took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men, and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. You have lifted up against you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine with them, from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see nor hear nor know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and who owns all of your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him. And this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uptasarin. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. To call, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple, put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Lord, we would ask that your word would have its perfect work of revealing yourself and changing our lives this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Before we look into greater detail of Daniel chapter 5, I would like to begin with a verse from the book of Romans in chapter 2. I'd invite you to turn to Romans chapter 2 because it's very important not only for our message this morning, but it's just important for our lives. Because God has called us as His people to represent Him accurately here on this earth. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. To do all to the glory of God means that in everything we do, we should give the right opinion of who God is. When people see us eating, when they see us drinking, when they see us serving, when they see us doing whatever it may be, they ought to get a right impression of who God is through us. They should, we should let our light so shine that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. To glorify God means that they get a right idea of who He is. We find out about how important this is in Romans chapter 2 where it is it's condemning the Jew righteous people. You see, the book of Romans spends the first three chapters condemning man's righteousness. It condemns as under sin, man as being unrighteous. He looks at the unrighteous man. Those that are fornicators and liars and murderers and violent. He condemns, condemns them under sin in Romans chapter 1. 
In Romans 2, he takes it to another level where he doesn't only condemn the unrighteous, the wicked, but he also condemns the self-righteous. Those that say that they're really great and look down their nose at other people, he condemns them. But he not only condemns the unrighteous and the self-righteous, he also condemns the religious righteous. Those who think because of their religious acts, especially Jews in this case, Jewish righteous people who thought that they were really righteous, that they were God's representatives on earth, he condemns them as under sin. And here's how he condemns them. Here's what he writes. Romans 2 verse 17, he says, Indeed, you are called a Jude and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. And are confident that you, yourself, are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth and the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. There's one great danger for God's people, whether they be self-righteous or religiously righteous, is when we, though religious, though self-righteous, though doing things, when we misrepresent God so that others blaspheme Him or dishonor Him because of the lives that we live, we have just placed ourselves in a pitiable, pathetic position. You see, the Bible tells us that world missions has always been God's plan. Remember I said that last week? World missions has always been God's plan. He didn't chose the people of Israel so that they alone would be recipients of His love and glory and, and know who He is. But He says, I have established you to be a light unto the Gentiles. It was your job to represent me to the rest of the world so that they too might know who I am. And yet, rather than representing God and honoring Him, giving glory to God by accurately representing Him, they gave themselves to idolatry, to immorality, to debauchery. And because of the terrible lives of disobedience and rebellion that they lived, they came to a place where they needed to be chastened by God. If we think... That just because we are the children of God, we can get away with doing certain things. We say, after all, I'm saved by grace, therefore I can go live however you want. Not only are you ignorant of the New Testament, you're certainly ignorant of the Old Testament as well. Because people have always been saved by God's grace. No one has been redeemed or justified or made right with God because of their good works. It's always been by grace. But folks, grace doesn't mean you're free to go do whatever you want to do. Those that have been redeemed by grace, called to be children of God, are now called to represent Him faithfully. And when we mar our testimony as God's children and as ambassadors, when we are involved in sinful actions that do not reflect well on our God, the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, He chastens. The Bible further says that if you be without chastisement, then are you bastards and not sons. And I'm using strong language but I use Bible language. The Bible language that says you're an illegitimate child, you are not really a child of God if you be without the chastisement of God. In other words, if you can go and live a life that does not reflect well on Christ, 
If you live a life of sin and debauchery and rebellion and yet you do not have the chastening of the Lord, whether it be a still small voice and the quietness of your bed as you go to bed and He is chastening and dealing with you, or whether it be the fact that He lets you get caught and trouble constantly follows you, or the fact that He allows you to become grossly sick or whatever it may be, if you're not being chastened by the Lord and you're living your life in sin, then you have every reason to question whether you're really a child of God. Are you following me at this point? The people of Israel had every, every reason to question whether they were really followers of God. The people of Israel had lived in so much immorality, debauchery, idolatry, that it finally got to a point where God says, I'm going to chasten them, I'm going to send them off into captivity. The Babylonians will come and lead them, the nations of the earth, they will be scattered among all of the nations. And when God writes, He writes prophetically about the exile, giving these very words that are being copied or being referred to in the New Testament and when he says the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And that is what Daniel 5 is all about. Daniel 5 is a picture, the most vivid portrayal of the blasphemy of the heathen because of the disobedience of God's children. You see, Belshazzar never would have had the articles from the temple to be able to desecrate them and defile them and, and treat them reproachfully. He would have never had them had the people of Israel lived in obedience and walked with their God. But because they were disobedient, God had to chasten them. God chastening them used a tool, a servant. He says, my servant Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to use him to chasten those people. And as he used Nebuchadnezzar, the great danger was this. That Nebuchadnezzar and the people of Babylon and the people of the world would think, oh, our gods must be greater than that God that finds himself in Jerusalem. After all, we've destroyed his temple. We've taken captive his people. We have taken all of the gold and the silver out of that temple and we've placed them in the, in the uh, place of our gods. You see, they get the wrong idea of who God is. They get wrong ideas about God because the people were living in a way that was dishonoring, un, not glorifying to God rather than glorifying God. Everything is so far as plain. Had this ever happened before? Certainly it had. There's another great picture of this kind of Ichabod or lack of glory of God in Israel in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7. I'm just going to tell you about them briefly before we study Daniel 5 in greater detail. But what happened in 1 Samuel was that because the people of God had taken a light view of sin, they were overlooking sin in the lives of their leaders, particularly two sons of the high priest. Eli had two sons, remember? Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas were involved in terrible immorality with people that would come to the temple to worship and they got involved immorally with the ladies that would come. Furthermore, they made the sacrifices of God to be abominable. People hated to come to sacrifice because Hophni and Phinehas were, were, uh, were ripping everyone off. They were stealing. Stealing from God, stealing from God's people. They were making the worship of God something that was abhorred among their people. And yet people would overlook it. Anytime that we start overlooking the sins of leaders, I'm telling you, the glory of God has departed from a people. Anyone that would look at their leaders and say, you know what? What they do in the bedroom really doesn't make any difference. It's how they perform in the boardroom. That's what's really important. Anytime we look at our political leaders and say, who cares about their private life? It's only their public life that we are really concerned about. When you take that low view of sin, then it's a good indication the glory has departed and we're not representing God well. 
When we take a low uh, view or we don't take seriously the view of sin in our own life and we overlook it, the glory has departed. We're not representing God well. But not only had they overlooked sin, these were a people who had replaced genuine knowledge of God and trust in God with relics. They were looking to artifacts to somehow bring them victory. They'd overlook sin. Because they overlook sin, they go into battle with the Philistines. When they go into battle with the Philistines, the Lord cannot bless them and thousands of their people are killed. And they say, whoa, this isn't good. We need some sort of victory. So they start thinking about, hmm, here were how we received victories before. The Ark of the Covenant would always walk before us. If we would simply bring the Ark of the Covenant here, then the Ark of the Covenant will come in and we'll be able to go on to victory. They weren't concerned about the genuine presence of God. They were concerned about some sort of artifact, some sort of representation. They didn't want to please God. They wanted a victory. And so they brought in the Ark of the Covenant. When the Ark of the Covenant comes into their camp, they substituted genuine worship for, or they substituted emotionalism for genuine worship. Here the Ark of the Covenant comes right into their camp and a shout of joy goes up. These are people who look back and they said, okay, how about those great victories in the past? Mm, I remember Jericho. Remember Jericho when we just shouted really loud and when we shouted, the walls of Jericho caved in. That's what we need to do. We're going to shout. Folks, the glory of God departs and we misrepresent God when we don't take seriously sin in our own lives and in the lives of our leaders. The glory is departed and we don't represent God well when we allow artifacts or relics to replace a genuine presence of God and demonstration and work of God. Let me give you an example. A little fish on the back of your car. It's a good thing, isn't it? Little uh, t-shirt that you wear that says, I'm a Christian. Pretty okay, isn't it? But shouldn't people be able to say, see in your life, not just by the back of your car, not just by your t-shirt, but shouldn't they see through your life, the change in your life that you're a follower of God and a Christian? We substitute all these other little things. Hey, I'm wearing a cross. Wearing a cross doesn't make any difference. You know, some of the most abominable, heathen, Satan-worshipping and Satan-honoring musicians that are out there prominently display crosses. Their purpose isn't to honor God. Their purpose is to associate that cross with the blasphemy that they're involved in. So relics, artifacts, that doesn't make a difference. I've come to the last one. Emotionalism. When we allow emotional sentiment to replace genuine worship. What do you mean by that, Jeff? Genuine worship is when we see God for who He really is and we respond appropriately to Him. When we worship, there will be emotion involved. Whether or not... I'm going to be honest, the criticism for churches like ours is that we become so stoic and so removed and so afraid of emotion that when we worship, we just turn off the emotion. We just don't, we don't want to worship. Listen, David, when he encountered God, he was joyful and danced before God. There were others that when they encountered God and when they saw God for who He was, they fell flat on their face weeping before God in repentance because they saw who God was, they responded to Him appropriately, and there was emotion involved. The danger is when we take that emotion and we make it the focus instead of worship. Because we start thinking that, hey, I had this great worship experience, encounter with God, say a camp type experience. And we think, I'd really like to have that kind of experience again. And next thing you know, we're trying to build up the emotions and we've just replaced emotionalism for genuine worship. It happens all the time. 
Instead of really seeing who God is and responding to Him, we use music to manipulate emotions and to stir feelings. We use stories to manipulate emotions and stir feelings. We get ourselves all riled up and we think that somehow I need to have this little campfire experience every day. Listen, you're not at a campfire every day. But you can know and respond to and worship God every day. You respond and worship to Him and it may not be the same emotions. I guarantee you it won't be the same emotions all the time. Sometimes when you respond to God and and you obey and worship Him, there won't be any emotion involved in it. But what I'm telling you is, the people of Israel came to a place known as Ichabod. The glory had departed. And here's why. Because they didn't take sin seriously. Because they substituted relics for the genuine presence of God. And because they substituted emotionalism for genuine worship. What happened? They bring the Ark of the Covenant in. They all shout. They think they're going to have victories. They go off into battle against the Philistines. 30,000 of them are killed by the Philistines. Because God's still not blessing. God's not with them. God's not impressed with their emotion. God's not impressed with their artifacts. God's not impressed with their uh, hidden level of sin. God is not with them and they're defeated. And you know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? It was captured. And that Ark of the Covenant that was captured was taken before the Gentiles, the heathens, and they took it to the God of their God, their God, Dagon. They took it to his temple. They placed it before their God, Dagon, and they said, Ah, see, Dagon, we bring you this resemblance. This this shows that you are greater than the God of the Hebrews. You see how the name of God is blasphemed in that case? Now you tell me, does God allow his name to be blasphemed? Even when he chastens his people, he still represents his name accurately. Whether he uses a a heathen king like Nebuchadnezzar or whether he allows the people to come into the, uh, the temple of Dagon. And when they come in, whether they find this great big idol, God made of uh, gold and silver and metal, flat on his face before the Ark of the Covenant, worshiping God is the picture. They set it up and they say, huh, something is wrong. I didn't feel any earthquake last night, but there must have been some sort of germ. They set it back up. When they set it back up, they come in the next morning, flat on his face before God. His arms are broken off because God is demonstrating, I am the genuine God. Everywhere that the Ark of the Covenant went with those Philistines came the power of God. God brought judgment upon them. God demonstrated to them who He was so that they came to know that there is a God in heaven and He is the one true God. Folks, the great thing about what I'm talking about this morning is this. Even as disobedient or as sinful or as chastened as the people of God become. And we may cause the name of God to be blasphemed among the Gentiles. What's great about it is this. God Himself is jealous for His name. He protects His name. He proclaims His name. And He will make Himself known among the heathen. So that they know that there's one true God. That's all great, isn't it? Now we come to Daniel 5 and we find the same exact principles lived out before us in this chapter. There's a new king in Babylon. His name is Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He actually was not the immediate uh, um, replacement for Nebuchadnezzar. There were several kings that came in. Nebuchadnezzar was great and there were several replacements right away. Belshazzar wasn't even actually uh, immediately related to Nebuchadnezzar. He was his grandson. As his grandson, Belshazzar wasn't even really the first king of Babylon. His father, Nabonidus, was the king. Nabonidus was the king. Nabonidus had been the son-in-law. He had married Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. 
Nabonidus, as history tells us, was a king who was off trying to defend the kingdom. They had nothing but troubles now that Nebuchadnezzar's gone. And so he was off in Arabia, Syria, he was trying, and he left his son as the co-regent, and he became the regent, really the king in Babylon, so that he was recognized, Belshazzar is recognized as the king. Nabonidus is first, Belshazzar is second, that's why when he makes the offer to the wise men, he says, hey, I will make you third in command. Why didn't he offer the second in command? Because he was second in command. He's offering third in command to whoever it was who could interpret this dream. Belshazzar. He's heard about God. He's known God. He is now king. And as the king, he blasphemes in a terrible way against who God was. Let me just give you a few thoughts. The, the passage is filled with so many different things. I mean, uh, there is so much to know about God from the passage like this. But I'm going to focus in on one main part that really gives us, a, gives us an outline that we're going to follow briefly. In, in verse 26, we find a revelation of God in verse 25 and in verse 26 where it says, Mene or Mene, Mene, Tekal, Upasarin, or the word Perez. These three words are revealing God. In all three cases, he tells us, first of all, God numbers our days. In other words, He is our life. Second, we discover that God weighs our worth. He is our judge. And third, we discover God divides our kingdom. He is our executioner, or you could say He is our sovereign. He's the one who reigns over us. Meaning that not only does He pronounce the judgment, but He carries it out. He's the executioner of it. Alright, you say, Jeff, how do we know him? Well, God's protecting his name. He's revealing himself here. There's much to be said. But let's just begin with these three hooks and we'll hang some thoughts on them. God numbers our days. That's what it said in uh, verse 26. In verse 26, you know, Hebrew, uh, Hebrew is hard enough to pronounce itself. You get into Arabic, which this is all written in Arabic which was related to Hebrew, gets even more difficult. And so I've said mene, I've said menah. Really, menah is probably the best way of describing it, but the words were written, so it didn't have to be pronounced anyway. Isn't that kind of nice? So, menah, what does that mean? The word menah itself means that God numbers our days. That's what he says in verse 26. God has numbered your kingdom and it is finished. God numbers our days. What's that mean? Look at verse 23. Daniel is speaking to this king and he says, And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all of your ways, you have not glorified. This king needed to know that the numbers of his day, the number of days of his life were ordained by God alone. He needed to know that God gives life. Why do you need to be reminded of that? When he hadn't known what this read, he's looking frantically for someone who'd interpret it. The queen mother, his mom, the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, comes in and she says, Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, use Daniel. He's the, he's the servant of the one true God and you should serve him. And when she comes in to fall before him, what does she say? She says the same exact thing they always said to the king. Oh, king, live forever. It's wishful thinking. We've heard it all through the book of Daniel. He's not going to live forever. Nebuchadnezzar didn't live forever. Belshazzar is not going to live forever. And here he says, God has numbered your days. God is the one who holds the number of breaths. He holds those in your hands. Folks, if we remember this simple truth and humble ourselves before God and recognize that every breath we breathe is from God and not ourselves. He is life. 
We would not even live had it not been for the resurrection and the life, He who gives us life. It was Jesus who spoke at the, at the funeral of a dead friend just before He raised Lazarus from the dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me, though He die, yet shall He live. Listen, if God is our life and if He numbers our days, then we ought to be like the psalmist in saying this, Oh Lord, teach us to number our days that we might walk in wisdom. Teach us to number our days and give us the wisdom that says our days are numbered and our time here on earth is short. If I were to take a survey to find out who the oldest person is here this morning, which I'm not going to do. Don't want to offend anybody. If I were to find out who the oldest person is here this morning, someone 85, we'd be saying they did pretty well, didn't they? Someone who gets up to 100 years old, we're thinking, wow, they've lived a long time. Folks, 100 years in light of all eternity? It's like a vapor. It's gone. And when God numbers our days and when He sees our life, it is like a vapor. Walking in wisdom says God is our life. And if God is our life, then we ought to seriously consider how we're doing, what we're doing with the days that we have here. So many of us are taking vitamins and we're exercising and we're doing everything we can to lengthen the number of our days here on this earth. Not only are we trying to lengthen the number of our days here on this earth, we're trying, counting on the numbers of days on this earth, we're trying to live to make those days satisfying. Hey, I want to have a good retirement, so I'm saving everything so that I can retire really well. Lord, teach us to number our days that we might walk in wisdom. Hey, I think that it's fine to go ahead and plan for the future. I think it's okay to go ahead and save, perhaps for a day when you're not going to be working or maybe not be able to work to provide for yourself and your family. That's fine. I'm not telling you not to be involved in some savings. What I'm telling you is, if you're saving simply for the days on this earth, then you have just missed where you ought to be investing your life and time for things that are eternal. Don't, Don't you think? Lord, teach us to number our days. They are short. They're troubled. They're difficult. But while I'm here, let me invest for things that are going to last. Let me live for eternal things. Let me invest the Word of God, which is eternal, into the souls of men, which are eternal. It is God who numbers our days. And if we remember that God is our life, then there will be a humility and a sobriety, a seriousness of life, and there will be a priority that looks to eternity, not just to days here on this earth. Belshazzar? did not number his days until all he wanted to do is eat and drink and be merry. He lived for every moment, every day. That's why we find him profaning his his own life, giving himself to all the alcoholism that was so rampant during the Babylonian Persian empires. They had feasts continually because somehow this feast made them feel like, well, I'm more successful of a king. From what I understand, um, Alexander the Great let me remember what it was. Was it his coronation, perhaps? Or was it, was it his marriage? Did he, was he ever married? Alexander the Great? I believe that it might have been at the reception after his marriage. It's one of those two things. Either when he was coronated or when he was married. He had a feast with 10,000 guests. We read in the book of Esther about Artaxerxes who had another one of these kind of feasts. To be honest with you, this wasn't just a little banquet like what we have. I mean, the wine was flowing big time in these places. They gave themselves the alcohol, drinking abomination of all of the, uh, the craziness that comes with alcohol, of abuse of it. The Bible clearly tells us, do not look on the wine 
You know, when it is uh, when it is a certain condition, we talking about it's strong alcohol and strong drink. He says, "Do not be drunk with wine, wherein is excess." These people were giving themselves a drunken debauchery. Why? Because they were just living for the moment. They're just living for today. That's Belshazzar. He's living for the day, giving himself to all of the all of the desires of his own flesh. Wife upon wife, concubine upon concubine. Here's a man who who lived to fulfill the desires of his flesh. Partying and drinking and eating, partying with women, desiring all this attention to himself. He lived for every moment and he lived every moment to its highest in that sense. His days were numbered and God says, boy, your days are numbered and your kingdom is about over. He says, you, you're finished. The way that you've lived is not wise. The way that you have lived is not living in an understanding that there's a God who is eternal. Boy, some of us ought to number our days, I think. Some of us ought to consider the way that we're investing our life or not investing our life and just all the different frivolous kind of things that we can give ourselves to. Belshazzar needed to recognize that God is his life. It even said in another part of this, there was a, a good reminder again that it is God who... It is God who gives us life. It is God who counts our days. And I'm sorry, I'm not finding the exact verse right now. The verse was saying uh, that God is the one who, who numbers our days. God is the one who gives life. He's the one who gives us breath. And all of that idea is found in this. Manah, God numbers our days. He is our life. Secondly, God weighs our worth. He is our judge. This is the word to call. To call is saying He's our... He's our judge. He weighs. Have you ever seen, you know, when you have a picture of justice in the United States, you have a, a lady, Lady Justice, I guess is her name. She holds up a balance a scale, right? She's, weigh, she's holding it and she, of course she's blindfolded because she wants to be unbiased as she meets out justice. Well, that's a nice picture. It's a picture of justice and judgment that is coming from scriptures. It is a picture of God who balances. It is God who weighs. He is the one who weighs our actions. He is the one who weighs not only our actions, but he weighs our motives. You know, there's a problem with uh, American or human justice. You can have a judge who's totally corrupt. He can be bought off. He's not unbiased at all. And he'll make a decision that favors him and, and finds for the wrong people. That happens. It happens more in other parts of the world than we have here. Praise God for that, right? But here's another problem. Let's even give them the benefit of the doubt that a judge isn't corrupt. A, a judge that's not corrupt is still fallible, isn't he? He's limited. He doesn't have all the facts. He doesn't have all the information. He can't see the motives behind what happened. God is a righteous and a just judge. He can see not only everything that happened, but he sees the motive that is there. He weighs our life. And the Bible says that God is our judge. If he, the Bible says that the whole earth awaits the coming of our judge who will judge with truth and with justice. He's going to come and judge in righteousness and we look forward to when He comes and He makes things right and He evens things out and that we can stand before Him. But while we look forward to the justice that He brings, let us consider God our judge in three different judgments. It's the judgment of the nations in the book of Matthew where it says that the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them like, the, like a shepherd divides its sheep from the goats. And He will turn to those on His right hand, the sheep, and He will say, Come, you blessed of My Father. Enter into the house or the blessings that are prepared for you from My Father. For I was hungry and you gave Me to eat. I was thirsty and you gave Me to drink. 
I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. They said, Lord, when did we do all these things? And he says, and as much as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. He is the judge who knows what they have done and he welcomes them to blessing. But folks, not only does he bless those that have done what's right, he turns to those on his left hand and he says, depart from me, you wicked. For I was hungry and you did not give me to eat. I was thirsty and you did not give me to drink. I was sick and you did not visit me. They said, Lord, when? We never remember you coming to us. And he says, inasmuch as you have not done it under the least of these, my brethren, you've not done it unto me. Folks, on the good side is God brings justice. On the bad side is God brings justice. And if he weighs us, just as he weighed Belshazzar, he weighs our life and he says, you are found wanting. It's the judgment of the nations. Then there's the judgment, the great white throne judgment. Revelation 20 says that everyone that has ever lived will stand before Him. And if their names are not found written in the book of life as they're gathered before Him, He says He will judge them according to their works. You say, Jeff, God judges works? I thought works had nothing to do with salvation. I thought that we're saved by grace. Yes, we are saved by grace. But He still judges us according to our works, not to see who gets in and who doesn't. He judges them according to their works to see what I believe would be the level of the punishment that they receive. I do believe that there will be hotter parts of hell for others than for for some. I believe that hell will be a greater damnation, not so much just because they, they... But especially bad for those who hear and hear and hear and have opportunity and opportunity and they continue to reject and live in rebellion. God judges them according to their works, what they have done. And He says if they are not found written in the book of life, they'll be cast into the lake of fire. Written in the name, their names written in the Lamb's book of life is the only way that they escape the fire. The judgment according to the works determines the degree of the heat, the level of punishment. Their names being written in the book of life keeps them from separation from God for all eternity in the lake of fire and they face a different judgment. What's their judgment? book of Corinthians says that there is the judgment seat of Christ. And the Bible indicates that every believer... If your name is written in the book of life, you're a believer. And every believer will stand before the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, at the judgment seat of Christ, and we will be judged according to our works. Judged according to our works. I I don't remember this when I signed up for this uh, Christianity thing. What do you mean we're judged according to our... He says you're judged at the judgment seat of Christ according to your works. Some have invested in gold, silver, and precious stones. Others have invested in wood, hay, and stubble. And when there's a judgment by fire, the things that don't last, the wood, hay, and the stubble, those things are gone. The gold, silver, and the precious stones, they last. And there is reward, there's blessing. And so, the judgment seat of Christ is when He, our judge, weighs us and He balances us and He judges us as Christians according to our works, not for punishment, because that's already been dealt with by Christ. Are you remembering? There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. If you are knowing, if you know Christ as your Savior, there will not be judgment or condemnation upon you. But there will be a determination of the level of reward. Either you've invested in things that don't last and there is a loss of reward, loss of opportunity, loss of opportunity for impacting and proclaiming and glorifying God. Or you have invested in eternal things, things that will last and there is a gain of reward. 
Now, I don't believe that there's going to be people up in heaven saying, hey, look at these rewards. How come you don't have any? They won't be boasting and bragging. God's just dealt with our sin nature, right? All this is done for His glory. And I believe that as the Bible says, we cast our crowns before His feet. And I believe that it is all done for the glory and honor of God anyway. There's no boasting, no bragging. But there is definitely a motivation for me as a believer to invest my life for eternal things, gold, silver, and and precious stones, rather than investing my time and energy in frivolous things. Jeff, what do you mean by frivolous things? Would you look around? This moth-infested building. (laughs) Frivolous things. The clothes that I'm wearing. Frivolous things. The car that I drive. Most of you have seen it. (laughs) Frivolous things. I can spend all my time building up things on this life and none of them last. And every time I invest in those things instead of investing for eternity, you know what I've just done? I've lost reward. I've lost opportunity. I say it again only because it's a personal application for me and you will identify it with it in other areas. I can coach and coach soccer and I can be so bent on building this team into the best team that they could be and try to win the tournament and get our trophies and acknowledgement. What have I just done? Frivolous things. Should we do our best? Yes, we do our best. I teach them. But folks, I build a relationship not because my desire is to be great soccer players. I build a relationship because my desire is to impact them for eternity. Many of them are lost and I have an opportunity to plant seeds that maybe they might come to faith in Christ. Some of them are believers and I can encourage them in their walk with the Lord. I invest not in the frivolous things. That's not where my success is. I invest in the eternal things, the souls of people around me. Your your value is being weighed by a judge. You will stand before Him someday. And if you stand before Him without the Lord Jesus Christ, then let me guarantee you, you will not be standing before Him determining level of reward. You're going to be only determining level of judgment and condemnation and wrath because the wrath of God is poured out upon them who do not know Christ. If you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and place your faith in Him, then all of God's wrath was already poured out on Him on the cross. That was judgment day. Your sins were paid for. You were atoned by Christ when He paid the, the price. Christ paid the price on the cross. We're all together on this? So if you don't know Christ, you're going to stand before a judge and you're going to be going to hell. By a just God who judges sin, is what the Bible says. On the other hand, you can stand before Him having been redeemed through Jesus Christ, having been atoned, having been brought to Him through grace in Christ where God's wrath is poured out on Jesus already for you. Now you're His child and now as you stand before Him, it's to determine the level of reward. To give an account of what we have done in our body, whether good or bad. You start understanding God is our judge. He numbers our days because He is our life. He weighs our worth, our value, because He is our judge. God divides our kingdoms because He is our sovereign. Here's where He comes and He says uh, with His last word, Perez. By the way, why is there the you in the Eupharsarin instead of, and there's no you in the Perez. Did anyone ever notice that? Look at verse 28, Perez. Well, the you is the conjunction and. That's what he's, it's all it is. 
So, that's the word. It's the word he's saying, and then this word Perez. The word Perez here is saying, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. This is God, the eternal sovereign God who raises up kings and sets them down, revealing himself to this king, saying, look, you're not the king because you married into it. You're not the king because you're so bright. You are only the king because I chose to raise you up for a portion. And as I raised you up for a portion, now we're going back to God's overall plan of the whole thing. God says, I've raised you up as a tool to bring chastening to my people Israel. But here's the tricky part. I'm using you as a, as a tool, but that's not saying that I like you. That's not saying I put up with what you've done. Though I'm using you as a tool, there will be a time in which you pay for the sins that you have done and your abominations. And God brings judgment upon Babylon and God brings another kingdom. The head of gold, Babylon, now gives way to the chest and the arms of silver. The Medo-Persian Empire. The second of the great empires that we've heard about is now taking over. And why is it? Because the, is it because the Medes and the Persians were so great? It's because God is in control and because God is giving the kingdom to someone else. Why? Because He weighed Belshazzar and said, you're found wanting. Nothing there. Your days are numbered. They're finished. He is our life. He is our judge. He is our sovereign. He is our king. He's the one who raises us up and sets us down. You say, well, Jeff, how did God do it? Most of us remember, as I've talked about this, I even had this idea and thought, oh, you know what? I'll tell you about it another time. <laughs> he is our judge. He is our life. He is our sovereign. Let's be sure that we don't cause others around us to blaspheme His name because of our disobedience, because of our rebellion, because of the way that we dishonor Him. Whew. Would you bow with me, please, in prayer? Lord, we do thank You for the rain. We desperately need it. We thank You that You are a good God, the Creator who not only creates, but You sustain. And Lord, You give rain. And we thank You for the rain that we've received. And we pray that You will just... Replenish the earth and bring the, the grass and the flowers and the trees to good health. And Lord, more than that, thank you for the, the refreshing rain of, of your word. And your word is given so that we might know you. And the more that we know you, the more we desire to serve you. Lord, we've gone through an, an awful lot of information this morning. It was all focused again on this fact that we need to know you. And as we know you, we need to represent you well. And Lord, our desire is to reflect reflect well on you our desire is that when we live at home when we work in our workplace when we go to school when we live in our neighborhood we desire to reflect well and represent accurately our God who is a gracious and loving God but who is also holy and right he is sovereign he is our life he is our judge Lord may we look to him and may we desire to please him and may we be found as a servant that has been faithful to you. Lord, the, the success that we have as your people, what you're looking for is not the numbers, not the results that we achieve. Your desire is us, for us to be faithful. And some of us have less opportunities and some of us have uh, less skills or abilities. But Lord, we all have opportunities. We all have uh, uh, people that we can influence. And may we be faithful in whatever those opportunities are to represent you well uh, to people who desperately need to know God. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, no one's looking around. Is there anyone who said, Pastor, as you spoke this morning, I don't believe that I've trusted Christ as my Savior. 
And it is a fearful thing to think about facing God as my judge when He is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. That's what, the, that's what Jesus said in the New Testament. And Lord, or Pastor Jeff, would you pray for me because I, I just want to have a right relationship with God through Jesus and I want to come to faith in Him. Is there anyone who say, I'm not a Christian, but as I've heard this morning, I want to place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that I can be forgiven of my sin. Is there anyone who would raise your hand? Say, Pastor, please pray for me in that regard. Is there anyone? I saw one earlier. Is there anyone else who'd raise your hand and say, Pastor, please pray for me. I don't know that I have a relationship with God through Christ and I desire to, to know the forgiveness of sins that only He can bring. Is there anyone? Then is there anyone who say, Pastor, please pray for me. I know that I'm a Christian, but as I've heard this morning, I need to remember that my, my breath and my days are from the Lord. I want my priorities to be right. I need to remember that, uh, that I will be facing Him and giving an account. And I desire to invest in the eternal things. And I'm just more aware of it. And, and I'm asking, Pastor, would you pray for me as, as the Lord deals in my heart with some of those things? Is there anyone, as a Christian, who raise your hand? Numbers of, numbers of hands. Praise the Lord. Lord, thank You for what You are doing in our hearts. Lord, teach us to number our days knowing that our life is from You. Teach us to prioritize and and humble ourselves before You, our righteous and just and gracious judge, recognizing that we will give an account for the way that we have invested and used our days and used our time and used our opportunities. And finally, Lord, help us to remember that You are sovereign. You raise us up and You set us down. Help us commit ourselves into Your hand. You are the one who executes this judgment. And Lord, help us to, to just know You and to fear You and reverence You. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, as we close by singing again the theme song that we have uh, taken for this book. Our desire is to know Him. Knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. All I want, held dear, build my life on.